This week on Hacker in the Fed, we sit down with Michelle Chia, head of cyber insurance at Zerk North America. We asked Michelle, what is cyber insurance? Who needs it? And how much coverage is needed? Does cyber insurance cover an insider threat attack? What does a ransomware attack look like when you have cyber insurance? And finally, we find out how our guests cultivated such a successful career in cyber insurance. Hector Monsegur was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks. Former FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbo, former FBI Special Agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now a founding partner of Nexo. Joined, as always, by my friend and podcast co-host, Hector Monsegur, former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the code name Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested Hector and convinced him to work with the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, cybersecurity expert, and as I said, close personal friend. Hector, how are you doing today? Oh, doing pretty well, my friend. You know, same old, same old, just geeking out. How about yourself? Very good. I'm super excited because we have a great guest on the show today. It's a topic that I know the nerd in you has wanted to talk about for some time. So it's going to be an exciting show. No banter again on this episode, unfortunately. Uh, Dave wins this one, but we have a great guest. We have Michelle Chia. She's the head of professional liability and cyber at Zurich North America, which is part of the Zurich insurance company. Uh, under Michelle's leadership at, at Zurich North America, her team has experienced double digit growth. Um, and she was recently named in Insurance uh, Business Magazine's 2023 Global 100. Michelle, welcome to Hacker in the Fed. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much. So uh, little, give the audience a little inside. We actually met Michelle at an event down in Florida. We came and spoke to her group, Hector and I, about cybersecurity. Um, and Michelle hosted a panel. And she is super knowledgeable about cyber and cybersecurity and cyber issues. And the audience seems to ask us a lot of questions about cyber insurance. Um, and so we thought it would be a great opportunity. We invited her with little hopes that she would say yes, but there she did. She said yes and came on the show. So Michelle, thank you so much for uh, for coming on. Hey, it was so much fun that day. And I'm really excited to, you know, spread awareness around insurance, cyber insurance in particular. Perfect, perfect. So so let's start there. Um, a lot of our audience, you know, they might not be involved in cyber, cyber insurance or be part of a business that has cyber insurance. What is cyber insurance? So cyber insurance, that's a great question. Um, I think the better question is who needs cyber insurance in the first place, perhaps. So cyber resilience, I believe, and I presume that you all believe, is critical for organizations. That's why people are listening to your podcast and tuning in today. Uh, cyber insurance policies are a pillar of cyber resilience. But before I actually answer your question, I'm going to ask you two questions. One, uh, does your company, actually the audience, do, do you, does your company rely on the internet to conduct operations? Second question, are you absolutely sure that your company's computer network, if it goes down, do you have a balance sheet or the wherewithal to stay in business? Now, you're probably, the audience is probably answering this question 
hypothetically in their heads right now. But let me give you a couple of statistics. 60% of small businesses go out of business within six months of a cyber event. And that's a staggering statistic. I think that speaks to the fact that cyber resilience is critical for organizations, for their ability to conduct business and continue on. And what we've seen in the headlines is that even well-protected organizations, well-known household names, get impacted by cyber events. We see this in the headlines so much. And these events even cost them millions of dollars. Uh, I'm going to stop there because I can go on and on with the statistics, uh, but let you guys like opine. What are your thoughts? So your two questions, if I answered yes to both of them, I need cyber insurance. If I answered yes to one of them, I, you think I need cyber insurance? Yeah, to, to either one, I think. Okay. If you rely on the internet and you can't access the internet to do your business operations, are you going to be able to continue doing business? How much will it cost you if you're unable to get onto the internet or if your networks are taken hostage? So I own a cybersecurity company in New York City, and maybe we're unique because our, our business totally relies on, you know, data and having other people's data and access to people's other data. So we have to have cyber insurance. You know, the companies that hire us require us to have a certain amount of coverage and all that. It, am I a unique business just because I'm in cybersecurity or do, do most businesses need some sort of coverage because they they're rely on the Internet? Yeah, definitely. I can give you a whole laundry list of examples. We can go through every sub-industry that exists known to man, and I can talk about why that matters. But let's let's take a couple of innocuous ones. So, um, you know, maybe it's a one-location restaurant um, or maybe a couple location restaurants or any sort of aspect of the hospitality business. Maybe you own a couple of boutique hotels and you get your reservations online. What happens if you can't access those reservations? Or if Michelle Chia wants to stay at the, that specific boutique hotel, and during that time period, your networks go down, Michelle Chia is going to choose a different hotel because she has to, because she wants to go on vacation and go to this very lovely location. But you're going to miss out on that business, firstly. And then secondly, if it happens while you're trying to uh, take your your guests, whether, you know, at the restaurant or at the hotel, and you can't log them in because you, you can't match them up with your reservation system. What happens then? You know, that's just one example, you know, a small business innocuous example. There are plenty of others. You can talk about the manufacturing industry. We can talk about the construction industry. We can talk about any industry that is not necessarily purely tech and talk through all these examples. If your network goes down, what happens? What are the business implications? So, I mean, that's interesting that, you know, you, you, the boutique, I understand the big businesses and all that, but, you know, it, it's, it's interesting to talk about how much business relies on cyber. And so the cyber insurance, what, what exactly is typically covered under the insurance? Let, let's, go, let's keep going down the analogy of, you know, the small boutique hotel um, and their network goes down. What's a, a, a coverage going to look like? Yeah, so there are a couple of components to cyber insurance policies, but let me just caveat it that cyber insurance policies are not made equal. Uh, there are, you know, maybe a hundred, maybe over a hundred of different insurance policies. So I can't speak to all of them, nor can I speak to them generally speaking. But I will try. I will do my best guess. <laughs> not my best guess, but I'll give my best attempt here. There's a liability component. So this liability component responds to lawsuits related to breach of personally identifiable information, protected health information, or the network in general. Um, There's also a component that can respond to privacy regulation. 
So one example that we talk about quite a bit in the insurance industry is that back in 2013, there are a whole host of organizations that were impacted by class action lawsuits, um, mostly those who took payment card information at the time. Many of them lost lots of credit card or debit card information, and they incurred these lawsuits. And the defense costs, the damages related to those lawsuits, that's what's covered typically under a liability component of the cyber insurance policy. Another component, the second component that we typically talk about is privacy, privacy breach costs. Not all these events end up in litigation or in lawsuits. And so there are other costs as you're going through the privacy or the, the, the cyber event. So the cost to hire a PR firm, because maybe people know about the fact that you have a cyber event, the cost to hire an attorney, again, there is no lawsuit, so it doesn't get covered under the liability component, but attorneys can help navigate through these events. Who do you have to notify? What happened? Uh, how quickly do you have to notify these individuals? Another component that is typically pointed to uh, generally in cyber insurance policies is ransomware payments with a caveat if it's permissible by law. Uh, we heard about the headline around Colonial Pipeline and they paid a ransom. You know, some insurance policies uh, tender payment on, on those types of events. Then there's also business interruption costs, and we're seeing a significant uh, portion of insurance payments in that particular segment. There's the net income loss arising from a cyber event. Um, and these are the, this is the component that's not publicized as much in the media because not every organization that's impacted by a cyber event is going to have a headline. And therefore, these costs, while paid by cyber insurance companies, they're not really known by the public. And this is where the net income loss. So let's say you're down for a week. What is the income loss that you incur during that week when your organization is not able to operate? It's going to look different for a manufacturing plant versus a retailer versus a services firm, like a law firm, for example. And one week is a short amount of time. But if you're just in time manufacturer, it's going to be very costly. Um, if you are a law firm, where you rely on all the data that's housed on the cloud, that might be quite impactful to you. So it really just depends on what your impact is if you're unable to access all the files on your network. So you, you talk about business interruption. So one of the, the cyber attacks, that and, and Hector says, you know, his big thing on the show is that the biggest threat we're going to see in 2023 is the insider threat. People inside our business, in fact, uh, you know, taking down our networks or former uh, employees, the insider threat, is that covered under cyber insurance? <laughs> that's that's another very interesting question. So, you know, generally speaking, and I'll have a caveat here, but generally speaking, cyber insurance policies are actor agnostic. I'm not an attorney, but here's my disclaimer. The Every claim, every cyber event has its own set of circumstances and therefore it's judged on its own merits. Um, again, the cyber insurance policy at its core, it's a contract. And so there are going to be areas of terms and conditions of the contract. And for example, there's a war exclusion, there's an infrastructure exclusion. If those are the components that are impacted, then there is generally no coverage regardless of the actor component. So I can't always answer that question, uh, but generally speaking, the insider component, because cyber insurance policies are actor agnostic, it's not one of those items that is a huge determining factor. Generally speaking, again, I can't speak to every single insurance policy. 
But there's this other, you know, sort of aspect within cyber insurance policies is that how does the event occur? Does it create a network interruption or is there an unauthorized access to personally identifiable information? That's kind of the entry point into uh, coverage that is sought. So we're, we're attacker agnostic, but does that mean that there is an investigation for every cyber incident? There, there's an in-depth investigation or a third-party investigation required for a payout from a, a cyber insurance claim? Well, that's conflating three different pieces. So let me break it down. There are certain industries, certain organizations that are subject to industry-specific regulation. And so I would say, like, go back to that. If you're in, in a highly regulated industry, there's a set of components. If you're publicly traded, there's another set of components there. From a claims payment perspective, there's certain information that is needed to determine whether that matter is covered. Again, I'm not on the claim side, I'm more on the underwriting side, but I'll, I'll share what I do know. You know, there are certain conditions, you know, if there is an actor that uh, perpetrated the act and they are on the OFAC sanctions list, then that is one area that is definitely no-go because as an insurance company, as a regulated organization, there are certain things that we just can't do. And one of them is to pay an organization or contribute towards the payment that goes to an organization that is on the sanctions list. So there are some of those components that are applicable. We get this question a lot, and it's not a question Hector and I know uh, know the answer to, and hopefully you can answer it. So if I, my company wants to get cyber insurance. Does the insurance company require like any sort of pen testing or vulnerability testing prior to? Do you need like, like if I wanted to get health insurance or death insurance, I have to go to the doctor and they have to take my blood and go through it. Is there a spot check before or during coverage? Death insurance. That's, that's an interesting one. I think we call it life insurance. In our oh, state. life insurance. Sorry. I call it. <laughs> so some do, some don't. Um, some policyholders find the process highly intrusive. All other policyholders don't. And so it really depends on their purchasing preference. Typically a insurance broker as the middleman, kind of like a real estate agent, gets involved in the transaction to help assist the uh, potential policyholder through the insurance procurement process, and they help with the matching. What is the organization's preference, and you know which carriers match their preferences? And you know some carriers take an in-between stance. To your point, you know my doctor asks me how many glasses of wine did I drink a week on average? Do I smoke? Um, some carriers ask informative questions. Do you employ network segmentation? Do you have elevated access protocols in place? The better your controls, the longer your lifespan, um, if you do or don't drink wine or, and how much quantity, and your ability to avoid, mitigate, minimize a cyber event. So, you know, at Zurich, we preach resilience. I, I mentioned it earlier. Cyber resilience is critical for organizations. And the process for a mid-size or a small organization looks different than that for a Fortune 50 organization. And by process, I mean the process of cyber resilience. But inevitably, there is going to be a process that helps the organization avoid, mitigate, mitigate or minimize the event. And so there are resources out there that exist for periodic checkups. If, um, if your organization isn't set up with an army internally to minimize, mitigate, or avoid events, or just, you know, the easier word to say is just be cyber resilient. I understand that cyber insurance can be quite complex and policies can change from business to business. And considering not all states require cyber insurance policies, 
and many of the laws may be different from state to state. How does a client know how much cyber insurance coverage is needed? You know, I think what we should be asking is what is the right amount of coverage for organizations? How do you determine what that right amount is? And the answer is math. Um, I love math. I hope your audience does too. I do. I love math. (laughs) I do too. Uh, (laughs) The limit an organization should purchase depends on a couple of factors, depends on their nature of operations. So we went through a couple of industry classes earlier. Uh, We talked about one location manufacturing plant that's a just-in-time production organization. How much time would it take them to get back up and running? And how much would it cost them if they are down for a week, a month, you know, six months? Um, What is that net income loss? And what is the cash flow uh, implications to that? What are the extra costs that that they may incur at that time? Okay, so what if you're one manufacturing plant? Now, what if you're a five location manufacturing plant and you diversify the locations in which you are located, but you have one in New Hampshire and then one in Idaho? Great, but how do you augment the staff in Idaho if the New Hampshire plant goes down? There are those additional costs. So what is that balance that you, that you need from a financial implication? We also talked about the restaurant business or boutique hotel. We can also talk about the retail space. Let's just think about what are the nature of operations and how much of a financial impact would that have on your balance sheet? Not if, but when the event occurs. And then the other component that we're talking about quite a bit is, do you outsource any aspect of your business? So we think a lot about, you know, I outsource, you know, the data component, um, you know, we use a cloud to save all our files, on-prem versus off-prem component. But there's another component, that I, a hidden component that I think we also need to consider. So I'll use one really easy example. Um, if there are any people in your audience who outsource their time card or payroll to a third party, how much will it cost you if your workers cannot come to work because the time card or payroll system is down for a month? Because you can't pay your people because you don't know what hours they're working because we no longer use the actual, I don't even know what it's called, but the Fred Flintstone. (laughs) Click. Yeah, the the stamp thing. I don't think we have those anymore. And so because of that, there are these other hidden aspects of the business where operations are outsourced because they're not part of the core control. So those components get considered. But there's also one component from a cyber insurance perspective that's not necessarily considered from a overall, you know, just pure coverage perspective, the limit. What, what should you buy? And I think it goes beyond financial recovery. So we're talking about cyber resilience here at the end of the day. Cyber insurance policies generally respond to the financial component, but there's also that response after a, an event occurs. So let's start with the breach coach. The breach coach is typically an attorney, a law firm that responds during these events, and they offer legal advice around what you should do or could do um, after an event, like who do you notify, what do you have to figure out, what's the timeline, and when to do it. So it's kind of like a a fire drill that we practice when we're like little kids in elementary school. Uh, We know where to exit the building, where we wait for the all clear sign. Many insurance carriers, many insurance policies connect policy holders with these breach coaches that have these resources. So again, another 
important component here is that this is a cyber insurance policy solution or provision and not an insurance policy provision. There are other insurance policies that may provide minor cyber coverage or limits or, or other components, but they typically do not provide these additional services. And it's critical when it comes to resilience. How quickly you respond, how quickly you mitigate the event after an event occurs is whether or not it will take you one month to get back up and running or six months to back, get back up and running or one week versus six weeks. So you brought up an interesting point there that I'd like to get a little more clarity on. We have an incident, we have a company, we have cyber insurance, and we have an incident and it happens. And we hire a breach coach that comes in and kind of helps us with it. What point in the, you know, the next few steps, where do I call my cyber insurance carrier? Is it the second call? Is it the third call? If I do, do I start the incident response? Uh, you know, I know business continuity is very important to a lot of clients that, you know, we're having an incident, but we need business to keep going. Where in the hierarchy should we reach out to our insurance coverer? Yeah. So if you know who your breach coach is, typically the breach coach would say, call us first because we can help with maintaining privilege and maintaining privilege becomes important down the road if a lawsuit does arise. That doesn't always happen because not all events are correlated with legal matters um, or regulatory matters, but that's what a breach coach would advise. And if you have your breach coach's phone number handy uh, because you wrote it down on a post-it note, then great. If you didn't write it down on a post-it note or save it in your Rolodex, you might be in a situation where um, you can't access your your network. And so you get to call your broker who might be saved uh, in your Rolodex or your, your cell phone or, or something give them a call. The broker will hook you up with your cyber insurance carrier who will definitely be able to connect you with the cyber breach coach. So it really depends. Like, do you have it written down? So I prescribe when you know we go and talk to clients, and, you know, uh, first, do you have an incident response plan? Uh, do you have something written down? And, and I always tell them to have not necessarily names of people to call, but titles and roles. Uh, because, you know, if you put someone's name, they're out on vacation and we don't have a backup role or something like that and it's, at that time, it, it, it's useless. Should that breach coach be, you know, should we have that ahead of time? Should that be part of the incident? Should we have a, a list of people that we have a predetermined uh, relationship with? Is that helpful or, you know, so we're not wasting time finding that person when the incident happens? If the house is on fire, who wants to go through the yellow pages? Uh, yeah, definitely don't go through the yellow pages because, well, there are plenty of other industry examples where that's probably not the best practice because it'll cost you an arm and a leg. I would say, yes, have it written down. Some organizations have a hotline, so they are available 24-7 because as, as you and I know, these events come in on Friday after 5 p.m. or, you know, first thing Saturday morning when everyone is, you know, enjoying their weekend or a glass of wine or something. Don't tell my doctor. <laughs> so, so yeah, definitely write it down. So whether it's a hotline or, you know, a cell phone number, I know that myself and my claims team, we text each other during those uh, weekends and or during holidays, because typically the, these events, again, happen when most people are not, it typically doesn't happen during nine to five. So we want to make sure that we're on call 24 seven, have that cell phone number, have that hotline number saved somewhere on a post-it note, not, you know, in an email somewhere where you can't access it. Yeah, no, Hector and I talk about it all the time. It took me a long time to figure out um, why do these attacks always happen on Friday afternoons? Uh, they seem to happen on Fridays before a long weekend uh, because, you know, most of the IT staff takes off and enjoys the weekend or something like that. It took Hector's educating me from the attacker's perspective on why that always happens. 
Are there any reasons why an organization couldn't be insured for cyber insurance? If I get in too many car accidents, maybe my, my car insurance company will drop me or something like that. Is, is that the same in, across all insurances or is cyber insurance a little different? Again, this is about resilience. And so we want to make sure that organizations are doing what they can do to be resilient on their own. First, cyber insurance is one of the pillars of cyber resilience. And so, yes, there are other things that organizations are expected to to do, to have, to be resilient first. Um, if you tell me that you have no controls in place, you don't password protect anything, or your password is password one, two, three um, at best, and there's no segmentation, no EDR, there's, there's no two-factor authentication, I might be a little bit worried because you're not doing what you should do. It's like saying, oh yeah, I'm going to give you property insurance, but I don't practice any like fire drills or, you know, these best practices, uh, they have to be in place. Now I will say from a carrier to carrier perspective, those might not be the same exact controls. And part of the reason for that is that um, different carriers have different loss experiences and different insights. What we see is that right now until the um, cyber space stops evolving um, expand and expanding so quickly, the, the insights that we're receiving around the best set of controls might not necessarily be the same from carrier to carrier to carrier because we're seeing different loss examples. But de definitely there's a baseline. If you do not have the baseline. Um, if you don't wear your seatbelt, if you don't have ABS brakes, uh, if you don't have locks on your door, you're probably not going to get the correlated insurance policy be because you're not doing what you have to do in the first place. In the event of ransomware, would the cyber insurance provider be involved in negotiations with the bad actors? Or would the victims have to involve a middleman business to interface with the attackers? Some states require some sort of cyber insurance policy. Others do not. At least here in the U.S., would such an inconsistency make it difficult to provide insurance for organizations nationwide? Are there any caveats that your team would need to work around as a result? Yeah. So again, here's the disclaimer. Every uh, event is judged on its own merits and it really depends on the circumstances. There's a clear no-go, which is where it's not permissible by law. One of those examples is when the bad actor is on the OFAC sanctions list and there um, is you know, a real-time check of whether the bad actor is on the OFAC sanctions list. Uh, the insurance carrier does not get involved in the negotiations of these ransomware payments. There are a group of organizations out there. These are professional negotiators that um, negotiate the, the terms of the ransom pay payment um, and every organization, every policyholder, every entity has to make that business decision. Do I want to pay the ransom in the first place? Do I not want to pay the ransom? There's a whole set of business decisions. I am not in that position. I've never been in that position. Maybe I will in the future, who knows, but I'm currently not in a position to make that business decision for every organization because they have a different set of business decisions, the decision tree that they have to go through to decide for themselves what is best for their organization. And then there is that engagement with the negotiator, typically um, first employed by the breach coach on the organization's behalf, again, to maintain that privilege. I've read some of the correspondence. I'm sure you've read some of the correspondence within the negotiating. It's so fascinating, uh, but I haven't been privy to a real life negotiation myself. So I don't really want to opine on that because I'm not the expert to ask there. But with respects to the ransom payment, you know, it, 
it's it's such an interesting dynamic. There are both the transactional considerations of should it be paid, should it not be paid, and what are the regulatory considerations that need to be thought through? What are the business needs for the organization themselves? And then what is, you know, what is the larger macroeconomic impact to economies if the decision is to pay or not to pay? And I I think it depends, is this a one-off situation or is it a scaled event? And if it's a scaled event, this is like 20% of the overall industry impacted all at the same time. If 20% of the I don't want to name any industry because then I'll have the knock wood. But if 20% of one specific industry is impacted all at the same time, what does that mean to our domestic economy or the global economy? If that industry is critical infrastructure, again, not going to name a specific industry because then I'll have the knock wood. But if 20% of that, that industry is impacted, what does that mean to our ability to get drinking water? So there are these other components that we have to consider and I'm not in a position to opine on, should we do it? Should we not do it? All I know is that we have to follow the law. Absolutely. We, uh, that's one thing we prescribe here all the time. Follow the law. Don't ever uh, go outside the, the, the law or, or trouble will be made. Yeah, no, Hector and I cut, did a story a couple of weeks ago about, you know, how the ransomware guys now are starting to use regulated spaces um, and they know the penalty of what's going to happen if that if a business in that regulated space has to pay, you know, uh, some sort of, you know, uh, penalty or something like that. And they they negotiate down and say, well, you know, this is only a quarter of what your government's going to charge you if we release the information. So yeah, it's a very tough space and, and trying to decide. Um, and, and it is a situational um, process to go through. You can't have, you know, one prescription fits all. So I saw in the news recently, there may have been some misquoted or some truncated statements uh, the, uh, from the CEO of Zurich. Is that something that you'd be willing to address and talk about? Yeah, let's give it a try for sure. Um, there have been a lot of questions around cyber risk. What is the future for cyber risk? What is the future for cyber insurance in general? And it's not so much about cyber insurance, but insurance and the core purpose of insurance in the first place. So let me break it down into a couple different segments. At the end of the day, there are certain aspects that when we pool our resources together, insurance is a way of pooling resources, then we can then take care of particular organizations when different organizations are impacted all at the same time. These are calculated risks. We can price and we can model for certain types of calculated risk. There's other types of risks that are hard to quantify. And they're hard to quantify because they are unique in nature. So one example is when there is war that exists, um, let's start with asking the question of whose responsibility is it to defend and protect when um, a bomb drops? Am I, as a private citizen, responsible to protect my own self, my own property, to defend and protect that property of mine by myself? And I think the natural answer is probably not, because I don't have defense missiles to stop that bomb from hitting my apartment in New York City. And so that begs the question of, if that's the response on the physical side, what is the response on the cyber side? When cyber weapons um, that are of military grade are used and deployed against particular assets, whose response is it to defend and protect? I'll leave that question and jump back to the physical side of things. Okay, when that bomb drops on Michelle Chia's apartment, whose responsibility is it to financially recoup and rebuild? It would be really hard for Michelle Chia to do that 
um, it would be really hard for the private sector to do that. And so there is something called the war exclusion on property insurance policies that respond that that specifically state the terms and conditions of war. Now, if we jump back to the cyber side of things, is the private sector, you know, private companies uh, with commercial access to commercial cyber tools, do they have the wherewithal to defend and protect themselves? If the answer is no, then, you know, whose responsibility is it to uh, financially recoup from or help rebuild if it's a cyber event that, that creates this? So that analogy is used to help create a parallel around unquantifiable cyber systemic risk. That is basically what I'm trying to describe there. Stop me if you have a question of, about that because I probably made a couple of jumps there. But what, what we're trying to do right now, what we have been doing is to identify and to also to differentiate between what is quantifiable and unquantifiable systemic risk, systemic cyber risk in this case. And if it's unquantifiable systemic cyber risk, then perhaps like in the property policy, it's not something that should be covered under a traditional cyber risk transfer policy. So does it just come down to that, you know, cyber insurance is fairly new in the space and we're just trying to, you know, kind of get it into the right lane and, and tweak it uh, where it should be? Let me use another analogy. Okay. Um, so we're all probably more familiar with car insurance and probably more familiar with personal lines car insurance. I'm not because I actually don't own a car because I live in New York City, but I'll take a stab at it. You know, car insurance came 50 years after the Model T or the car had actually stopped evolving at a rapid pace. We're going to get back into that with autonomous vehicles and technology, but let's let's pause and say that that's not the case quite yet. So technology for cars has kind of, you know, plateaued and once in a while we'll go from seatbelts, no seatbelts to seatbelts. And then, you know, a decade later we'll say, okay, ABS brakes and then, or, or no ABS brakes, now ABS brakes or, you know, emissions, um, there's a particular threshold, but that's not coming, you know, 10 different things all in one month, but that is happening on the cyber insurance side of the house. And also, it's not just how we are responding to these different types of ways of um, cyber events manifesting. The cyber events themselves are manifesting in different ways. And the frequency of these events and the manifestation and the severity of these events, the, the scale, the cost of these events is shifting rapidly. And that's one of the things that we're just seeing and learning as an industry together. So, yeah, you know, we all hate it when insurance costs increase, you know, by 3%, 5% year over year. It's kind of like, you know, inflation costs, like things cost more the next year because, you know, there's something called inflation. But that's a little bit different than what we're seeing on the cyber insurance side of the house. Because, again, these threats are shifting so rapidly and therefore the, the mitigation and the, the likelihood of something happening to an organization is shifting so significantly as well. All great stuff on cyber insurance. Uh, Michelle, one of the big questions we get, or the, the biggest question we get is, uh, how do I get my child into cyber, cyber security? How do I get my child involved in cyber? I think cyber is the future. You know, and a subset of those questions is, how do I get my daughter into cyber? We recently interviewed uh, Kelly Moan, and she's the CISO of New York City. Um, and so we thought it'd be interesting to have uh, more people like you, you know, women that are prominent in cyber. Um, can you kind of describe your path and how you came into cyber? 
Yeah, I'd love to share my story. So I think the universe chose me. And I, as I look back, um, there are so many things I can point to where, yeah, the universe chose me from a very early age. And I'll explain why that is. But typically when I get asked that question, I, I say I fell into it because I, I don't know, like I've been learning as I go. I didn't study cyber. I didn't study technology in college. I you know, didn't study technology or, or cyber um, in high school or, or before that. And I will have to say a great shout out to the team of technicians around me, really great risk engineers and advisors in different segments of cyber, whether it's the regulatory space or the vendor space. Like there are so many people that advise me on on things related to cyber because it's about, you know, crowdsourcing information too. But really, I, I really do think that the universe chose me. So uh, the story actually starts with my dad. My dad was a comp sci major and started his career in IT. And so we had, our family had had the internet since I think it's like the 80s. Wait, you had, you had the old phone put into the thing? Where the, remember where the, the phone would have to talk to through the modem and you'd hear, does that sound like a fax machine? Yeah. You had yeah, that it, sort of, wow. Exactly that. And like, I just never, you know, I never blinked at those noises because I've been hearing them since I was in diapers. Terrible visual for everyone. Good thing you can't see me right now. But yeah, like we were VPNing in um, during the dial-up days. And my mom would get furious because she's like, I want to talk on the phone to my friends. And my dad would be like, I have to work. Um, and we didn't have two separate landlines. So um, I, I've been doing that since I was a kid, but I usually played like video games. Um, I didn't do anything complex. But I was my dad exposed me to a lot of these internet and other things related to networks and cybersecurity early on. I just didn't realize it. So things like social media. I think my dad was one of the first guys on ICQ. I think that was one of the first social media organizations. But really just uh, was exposed to this since I was a kid. I, I think when everyone else was learning about computers and the computer lab in, in the 90s, you know, I was a kid that was let left alone, I just was allowed to play video games because everyone else had to learn PowerPoint and like learn what the shift key and control keys were. And, you know, when there was no mouse, I figured out how to navigate uh, computers. Fast forward, I fell into the insurance industry. I started in the technology professional liability space um, and cyber insurance kind of is a segment that came out of technology professional liability. And so from then on, I just kept on being pushed into the cybersecurity space as it relates to insurance. And again, made a lot of friends, grew my network from a cybersecurity perspective. And here I am on your podcast talking about my story. No, it's fantastic. I, you know, I research your your history and uh, kind of what's going on. Uh, you know, the audience. Uh, Michelle is is a, is a smarty pants. She went to the Wharton School of Business at University of Penn, got her MBA there. So, um, you know, what what did you originally go to college to do? I studied economics and child development. I was deciding between business and being a teacher. Unfortunately for my teachers, and unfortunately for me, um, I was not great at school, though I do have a lot of like degrees uh, that sound really fancy. Um, I was not a great student. Um, I figured out how to you know get through school. And then also I, I played a lot of pranks on my teachers and I was really nervous that karma would bite me in the behind. So I avoided the teaching side. Sorry, teachers. And I went down the business side because I didn't think that I would be, you know, I, there wouldn't be as much karma. And clearly karma has worked out in my favor. 
Well, we're certainly going to talk about those pranks once we turn these microphones off. So the audience, I'd love to hear some of the pranks you were pulling. So, but that, that's fantastic. So, you know, great information, uh, great feedback. What is, uh, is, if someone wanted to get into this space, what is a, a path for someone that, that wanted to kind of follow the steps that you've taken? Yeah, so I'd say definitely give me a phone call, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to talk with you individually. But anyone with a critical thinking, analytical mind is really well positioned because, like I said earlier, like I don't know all everything. I don't have all the answers, but I have a great group of advisors around me. And so it's learning on the job. There's a lot of learning on the job. And I would say so long as you can take a step back, try to see the bigger picture or take a step forward and get into the weeds and understand the dynamics you're willing to learn, that's the number one thing I'm looking for. That's the number one thing I think most people in the cyber insurance space are looking for because there's so much going on and you have to love learning because you're always learning. I, I learn every day and it, it's really exciting. That's great. Last question. Do you have a favorite hacker movie? Uh, yes. I love James Bond. I love okay. all things about James Bond. And I believe his last movie, the last movie that Daniel Craig did, had some um, some relation to hacking. Not a direct hacking sort of movie, but again, I think it's more about James Bond. It counts. If people consider Die Hard a Christmas movie, we'll consider the last Daniel Craig movie uh, a hacker movie. So that's perfect. There so, you go. Um, interesting. So that well, there's an interesting connection. I actually uh, kind of helped them with that that movie when they were starting to write it. So uh, some of the information on that. So I actually get to meet with Daniel Craig uh, on that. It was a really weird afternoon. I knew a couple guys in Hollywood. I got walked into a room. I sat there, and Daniel Craig was there, and we talked about cyber things for a few minutes. So. Very exciting stuff. So small world. That is so cool. If you ever do that again, can you invite me? Absolutely. And I'll just like be your bag person. I'll carry your bag. No, I'm sure he'll want to know some things that you you know about cyber too. So it's great. Michelle, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Had a great time talking with you. Very informative. I'm sure that the audience is going to uh, reach out and have a ton of more questions about insurance. So maybe we can have you on in the future and uh, if, if we can answer their specific questions. Because one of the, the favorite things Hector and I do is answer uh, listener questions directly. So it, it'll be good. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Cheers. That was a great interview, Hector. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, no, it was fun. I mean, this this one thing I, I do enjoy, and that's uh, talking uh, about cyber insurance. I know the nerd in you is is saying that, and, and I, I somewhat believe it. Uh, but it, it's a it's a little odd to say that that you're you're excited to talk about insurance. But but okay, I'll believe you. Yeah, well, I'll I'll give I'll give you my I will see my perspective. Okay, there are a lot of times where I'm having conversations with clients who mentions, hey, you know we have to get cyber insurance or, Hey, we're up for a renewal in our policy, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes they don't really know the ins and outs of what that really means. So I've always found it fascinating, especially when we're able to talk with folks or speak with folks like Michelle and kind of go over the topic because, you know, even, even sometimes I have questions about, you know, the policies and how that applies to even the work that I do. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we demystified a bunch of things about cyber insurance for me. And that was really great of Michelle to offer to the listeners, if you know if they had a question, to, to reach out to her because she is a uh, superstar in the cyber insurance world. So hopefully people utilize that and uh, 
can reach out to Michelle if they have uh, specific questions. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. We got an email that came in and I want to talk to you about it. So I get, you know, if you want to reach out to Hector and I, uh, it's questions at hackerinthefed.com. We love your questions. We'd love just your feedback. And really this started off by a, a listener of Hacker in the Fed, a guy named Alan reached out and just asked some, you know, things about getting a career and what we could do to, you know, the advice we give him. Um, Hector and I, you know, we, we email back to all these people. It's our number one question is how do I get into cybersecurity? What can we do to look at things and help things? Um, but we, you know, had some back and forth with Alan and we got some feedback from Alan this week, Hector. It's, uh, are you ready for me to, to read this for you? Oh, please do. Uh, and I, I hope it's great news. It, it is good news. So I took, I took parts out of it um, to keep private, uh, but this was eh, generally what, what Alan had to say. So uh, I mentioned I'd send you a follow-up when something in my job search is stuck. Uh, so this would be that email. I also wanted to quickly say thank you again for your encouragement and the resources you sent earlier. There's no doubt in my mind that it prepared me well for the application process. And here it comes, Hector. As it turns out, the opportunity that ended up sticking was with the NSA of all places. Oh, um, look at that. I know. This is big. None of this would have happened if it wasn't for you and Hector's hard work on Hacker in the Fed. Moreover, I suspect I wouldn't have landed such an interesting offer uh, if you hadn't taken your time to offer some direction and guidance. Uh, if nothing else, you and Hector have had a tangible, positive impact on at least one person's life. Alan, that is super to hear. I am so excited that you sent this email. I'll follow up with another email to you, but I just wanted to go on the show and say, you know, it's emails like this that really kind of push Hector and I to, to do the show every single week. Oh yeah, no, this is this is a major motivator. Big shout out to uh, to our homeboy Alan here. You know, I know he's going to kick ass. He's going to do great with the new job, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing updates here and there as as time progresses. So yeah, he better not forget about us when he becomes big time. Uh, you know, and, and when he uh, reaches the top of the NSA, you know, he better still come on the show and and talk to us. Yo, imagine that. He turns out to be like the director in like, you know, 15 years and <laughs> that'll be amazing. Yeah. So again, congratulations, Alan. I'm, I'm glad we could play a small part uh, in helping you and giving you some guidance and uh, just, you know, motivating you to, uh, to, to really get into cybersecurity. And so again, so if anybody else wants that same advice um, or wants to, you know, a little personal encouragement from Hector and I, reach out to us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. So Hector, again, a great interview with Michelle. Great feedback from a listener. I really enjoyed our conversation this week. Um, new episodes every Thursday. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends if they have questions about cyber insurance, come listen to Hacker in the Fed. And uh, we'll have another great episode or another great guest next week. All right, my friends. Well, cheers. Cheers to you.